Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 17th episode of The Writ Podcast. Let's get to this week's election headlines. Last week, we talked with Dave Cornway about Monday's voting in Alberta. We won't have complete results for the referendum or senatorial elections until early next week, but we do know who will be the next mayors of Alberta's two largest cities. In Calgary, voters elected their first woman as mayor when Jyoti Gondek captured 45% of the vote, defeating her main rival, Jeremy Farkas, who took 30%, with 13% Jeff Davison finished third. Edmonton now has its first mayor of South Asian heritage in Amarjeet Sohi, a former Liberal federal cabinet minister. Sohi also got 45% of ballots cast, with Mike Nickel finishing second with 25%, and Kim Kershaw third with 17%. Both Gondek and Sohi come from the more progressive side of the political spectrum and generally represent a continuation of the policies of the two outgoing mayors, Nahid Nenshi of Calgary and Don Iveson of Edmonton. Last Friday, Elections Canada announced the number of seats each province will have after the next redistribution, which will not be completed until early 2024. The changes are relatively minor, with BC and Ontario each getting one more seat and Alberta getting three. Quebec's seat total will drop by one. There will be no changes in the other provinces due to the senatorial or grandfather clauses in the representation formula. Compared to their share of the population, BC, Alberta, and Ontario will continue to be underrepresented in the House of Commons, with about 64% of the population, but just 60% of the seats. Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Atlantic Canada, with about 13% of the population, will have about 18% of the seats. Independent commissions will be created in each province to redraw the boundaries, so even in provinces that will have the same number of seats, riding boundaries might still change as their populations have moved around since the last redistribution a decade ago. Thankfully, in Canada, we don't have the kind of gerrymandering that is such a problem in the United States, but that doesn't mean political parties won't try to lobby against changes that could disadvantage them in the next election. We're already hearing some opposition to the changes from Quebec, both from the CAQ government and the opposition Quebec Liberals. We'll see if the reduction of Quebec's representation in the House will actually go ahead. In Newfoundland and Labrador, NDP leader Alison Coffin has announced her resignation after a majority of delegates to the NDP's provincial convention voted for a leadership review. In the provincial election held earlier this year, the NDP won two seats and 8% of the vote, after winning three seats and 6% of the vote in 2019, which was Coffin's first election as leader. After winning a seat in 2019, in the recent election, Coffin was defeated in her riding of St. John's East Kittivitty by just 53 votes. MHA Jim Din will serve as interim leader. A by-election will be held in Prince Edward Island on November 15th in the district of Cornwall Meadowbank. This was the seat vacated by Heath MacDonald, who was successfully elected as the new Liberal MP for the federal riding of Mount Peck. MacDonald won the provincial riding in 2019 for the PEI Liberals with 48% of the vote, with a Green second at 33%. The area has supported the Liberals in every election since 1986. Hey, I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal. And we're here to tell you about Canada's top. And only. And only daily business news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily. And every morning we get you up to speed on the need to know Canadian and global business stories. And we do it without all the jargon that can make business news a little. A little dull. Dull, exactly. And did you mention we do it all in just seven minutes? Six minutes if we fast forward through all of your dad jokes. Well, I prefer to call them rad jokes, Brett. See what I mean? Come for the daily business news, stay for the dad jokes. Join us and thousands of Peak Pals every morning to start your day smarter. Find the Peak Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts.
All right, for the polls of the week, uh, there's two polls I wanted to highlight, two provincial surveys. One is from Ontario. This was done by Leger for Post Media. It was in the field between October 8th and October 10th and surveyed 1,003 Ontarians online. Voting intentions in the survey among decided voters had 35% for the progressive conservatives, 30% for the liberals, 25% for the NDP, and 5% for the Greens. This would represent a drop for the PCs, who took just over 40% of the vote in the 2018 provincial election, and a big increase for the Liberals, because they only got just about 20% of the vote. The NDP has dropped from about 33 to that 25% mark. It's always a bit complicated when it comes to Ontario provincial polling between campaigns, and especially so close to the federal election. Uh, so I have some doubts about any numbers I see out of Ontario. But if we look at the numbers uh, regionally, the Liberals were ahead in Toronto, the PCs were ahead in the 905 and the Southwest, and there were closer races in the rest of the province. But really, it is a very tight three-way race. And with 35% of the vote, regardless of what support the other parties have, it's hard to see the PCs winning a majority government. Uh, but they're certainly within spitting distance of one. One of the issues, uh, I think, for the PCs is, well, Doug Ford. If you look at the favorable, unfavorable numbers in the uh, in the Leger survey, Ford had a negative 16 rating when it came to that favorable versus unfavorable. Uh, but he sold about 38% who had a favorable view of him. That's enough to win an election. But the 54% or so who said they had an unfavorable opinion, if they're divided between the Liberals and the NDP, then the PCs can win. But none of the leaders are popular. Andrew Horvath of the NDP was at a minus four. Stephen Del Duca of the Liberals was at a minus seven, and Mike Schreiner of the Greens was a minus eight. And for the Liberals, when I see them at 30% in Ontario, I really think about how many people know much about the Ontario Liberals right now. 36% in that leisure survey said they didn't know enough about Del Duca to have an opinion about him. And that seems low to me. Think for a second that people who take part in polls tend to be a little bit more engaged to begin with. I think that's an issue for the Liberals, is that Del Duca is still very much an unknown quantity, and in a poll that has the Liberals doing well, you wonder how much of that is just the brand, uh, which federally is is a good one in Ontario, and how much of it is the actual voting intentions. Uh, For the NDP, Andrea Horvath, still 17% said they didn't really know much about her, and she's been leader of the NDP for over a decade. Uh, The opposition leader in Ontario, whoever it is, I mean, I think people really only get to know that person, even if it's every four years. Uh, when there's an election campaign. In Alberta, there was a poll by Main Street Research for Western Standard. This was in the field October 12th to 13th and surveyed 935 Albertans by Interactive Voice Response. The numbers were good for the NDP, bad for the governing United Conservatives. The Alberta NDP scored 45% in the poll compared to 29% for the UCP. The Wild Rose Independence Party finished third with 13%, and the Alberta party brought up the rear with 6% of uh, voting intentions. We've actually seen these kinds of numbers in Alberta for a little while, uh, so they're not actually shocking or in any way surprising. But just to continue to see this pretty big gap between the NDP and the UCP in Alberta, uh, I think really puts a lot of pressure on Jason Kenney right now. He is extremely unpopular. His approval ratings have tanked, and a lot of premiers with his level of support have not remained premier for very long. The NDP was leading in Edmonton by 41 points, so that's a sweep, probably. But they're also ahead by 17 points in Calgary, so they could win a lot of seats in Calgary. The UCP did hold leads in the rural parts of the province, but only in single digits. 
So the NDP would by no means be out of the running to win some seats outside of Edmonton and Calgary. You could particularly th- see them winning some of the smaller cities like Lethbridge, Medicine Hat, Red Deer, uh, which they were able to do when they formed a government back in 2015. For the UCP, things are, well, not going well. And they haven't actually led in a poll since November 2020. That's near in a year. We'll see if Jason Kenney can hold on until the provincial election in Alberta, scheduled to be held in the spring of 2023. Okay, questions and answers. Every week I uh, ask my Twitter followers for some questions to um, answer on the podcast. You can follow me at at EricGreniertw, and um, you can get your questions to me, and I'll try to answer them. Uh, You can also email me, eric.grenier at therit.ca. Um, send me your questions. I, I'm always looking for something. But anyway, there is two questions uh, here that were on a similar topic, so I wanted to put them together. One was by Ryan. He asked, would using ranked choice ballots in the last federal election have led to any major changes in the results? And Lou Cumberland asked, what are your thoughts on Del Duca proposing ranked ballots? How do you think that promise could impact the upcoming election? And if implemented, how would it change the electoral landscape in Ontario? There's been a lot of talk about ranked ballots this past week. Stephen Del Duca uh, announced uh, that if elected Premier of Ontario, he would implement ranked choice ballots. To explain it kind of simply, the idea of ranked choice ballots is that every riding would have a candidate that a majority of voters preferred over the other options. So you'd get a ballot that would have the names of all the candidates and you could rank them one, two, three, four, five. If none of those candidates get at least 50% of the vote, the one with the fewest first choices gets dropped, and those votes are redistributed according to how people wanted their second choice. So the idea behind this is that it would encourage more reaching across the political aisle, uh, because you wouldn't want to antagonize uh, potential supporters. So it would be less about voting against parties and more for voting for parties. Uh, It's not by any means a proportional kind of system, because... It's all about choice and making sure that every riding has at least a candidate that is preferred over the other options. It was the preferred choice for Justin Trudeau when he was proposing electoral reform. And it's often criticized uh, when it comes from liberals because as the centrist party, they're the natural beneficiary of a ranked choice uh, election system. I think that while that is true for the most part, I think that is a somewhat non-nuanced kind of view of things. The party that's always going to benefit most from ranked choice is the party that most voters like, but also that is popular enough to begin with. The Ontario Liberals in the 2018 provincial campaign would not have benefited from a ranked choice ballot because they would have placed third in a lot of ridings. They would have dropped off first and a lot of their supporters would have gone to probably the NDP. In the Ontario election 2018, the Ontario NDP would have been the biggest beneficiary of a ranked choice ballot, not the Ontario Liberals. So it's always going to be the party that has the most first and second choices, but also has enough first choices to survive the culling process. The idea that Liberals benefit the most is true in the context when the Liberals are first or second, but not necessarily true when they're in third place. In the 2011 election, federally, the NDP would have been the biggest beneficiary of a ranked choice ballot. In 2015, it would have been the Liberals. In 2019, it would have been the Liberals again. So yes, there's always some uh, self-interest in proposing various election systems, electoral systems, but it's not a 
hard and fast rule that a ranked choice ballot would automatically benefit the liberals. It would benefit the liberals in certain contexts. In other contexts, it could benefit other parties. Now, in terms of the particular question from Ryan, how would have impacted to the results in the federal election? In this case, the liberals would have been often the biggest beneficiary because uh, Green and NDP voters in most ridings would have dropped off first. Their votes would have largely gone to the liberals, not the conservatives. So almost certainly the liberals would have emerged with a majority government. But in some parts of the country, the NDP might have benefited, in Western Canada, for example. In Ontario, the question is, who is the second-place party? The PCs, the Ontario PCs, do not have a lot of second-choice support. So they would only be gaining a few votes in some ridings as uh, some candidates dropped off. The beneficiaries would be whoever is ahead in a particular riding, whether it be the Ontario NDP or the Ontario Liberals. In some areas, the Liberals would benefit the most. In some areas, the Ontario NDP would benefit the most. Based on where the polls are right now, you would expect that the Ontario Liberals would probably do pretty well in the Toronto area with a ranked choice ballot, whereas the NDP would probably do pretty well in southwestern Ontario. But I think this would change the electoral landscape quite a bit. I don't think it's a bad system. Uh, It's just a different system. It has a different goal than a proportional representation system or a first-past-the-post system. We'll see if Del Duca actually implements it if he does win the next election. I don't think he'd get much support from the other parties on it, so we'll see how that'll all unfold. Now, this question came from Matt Kircher. Has there been any polling on the BC Liberal race? And who do you think stands a good chance in capturing that leadership? Yeah, the BC Liberals uh, don't have a leader since Andrew Wilkinson stepped down after the uh, 2020 BC election. The Liberals will choose their next leader early next year. Now, just if you don't know, the BC Liberals in and British Columbia is more of the Conservative Party. Um, I haven't seen any polls. If you're looking at who is running, Kevin Falcon, he currently leads in endorsements. Uh, He was a very, very, very close runner-up in 2011 when Christy Clark won uh, the BC leadership race and became premier. He is a former minister of finance, former deputy premier. I would suspect based on all of those metrics that he would be the favorite at this point. Uh, There are some other candidates that have declared as the ones who are currently MLAs. Kevin Falcon is not an MLA, but of the current MLAs who are running, you have Michael Lee, Ellis Ross, and Renee Merrifield. We'll see how it all unfolds and if there's any polling, but polling in leadership races is always uh, pretty difficult. Jesse Wright asked, is there a historical precedent at the provincial level for a former premier to stick around a full majority mandate of another premier and come back and win again like Notley hopes to do? There is. I can't really think of too many. The only one that comes to mind immediately is uh, Maurice Duplessis. Uh, who uh, came to power in 1936, was defeated in 1939, and then returned in 1944. And the opposition leader, or the premier, who he uh, defeated, Adelard Godbout, was the same situation. He lost the election in 1936, was still leader of the Liberals, became premier again in 1939, and then stayed on as leader of the opposition uh, after 1944. So, um, so yeah, that was a time when it was Godbou and Duplessis. Uh, they swapped chairs for a couple elections. Riding the day asked this. He said, who is the first MP and MNA you were ever represented by? I like this question just because it's a, it's a, a nice little uh, memory lane kind of question. So when I was born, Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister and my provincial premier was René Levesque. The riding I was born in, both provincially and federally, though the boundaries were different, was named Gaspé. It is... Uh, a riding that at the time occupied the tip of the Gaspé Peninsula. This is part of eastern Quebec, uh, just north of New Brunswick and 
just along the uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And federally, the MP was Alexandre Cyr. He was a liberal. He served in that function from 1963 to 1965, and then again from 1968 to 1984. So he was there for a while. Um, but he was mostly just, it seems, a backbencher. He was briefly parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Public Works. Um, but uh, he was my federal MP when I was a baby, and I was not able to vote when I was that young. Provincially, my MNA was Henri Lemay. He was uh, from the Parti Québécois. Uh, he was a one-termer, served from 1981 to 1985. So now you start to get to an even smaller window of time where I could have been born. Um, he was the, I'm not sure what the English translation is, uh, but he was the adjoint parlementaire, so maybe parliamentary assistant to the Minister of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Food. Uh, and he was also the ministre délégué. Again, I'm not sure what these are in English. Uh, au développement et à la voirie des régions. So anyway, he was uh, only there for one term and was defeated in 1985 in that election when uh, the Parti Québécois was replaced by the Quebec Liberals. But that's a fun little uh, fun little thing. So why don't you tell me what who your MP and MPP, MNA, MLA, MHA, uh, who they were when you were born way back when? And people can try to guess how old you are. On this week's installment of the Every Election Project, we're going back 50 years this week to the Newfoundland and Labrador election held on October 28, 1971. For over two decades, Joey Smallwood and the Liberals had ruled Newfoundland and Labrador since it joined Confederation in 1949, and ruled is a good description for how Smallwood ran the province. It was his fiefdom. The 1966 election, which Smallwood intended to be his last, was a landslide Liberal victory. The party took all but three seats and 65% of the vote. Smallwood was ending his time as premier with a string of successes, including the beginning of construction of the huge hydroelectricity project at Churchill Falls. But the opposition progressive conservatives were gaining new life just as the recession hit the province. Taxes were raised and the fisheries took a hit. Divisions started to merge within the Liberal Party after Smallwood bullied Newfoundland delegates to back Pierre Trudeau over Robert Winters, who was their preferred choice in the 1968 federal leadership race. The split cost Smallwood the support of John Crosby, who left the cabinet. In the subsequent 1968 election, the federal PCs won six of seven seats in Newfoundland and Labrador, which Smallwood had previously been able to deliver for the federal liberals. He looked weakened, and he shortly afterwards declared the party would choose his replacement. But when it became clear that the party would be handed over to John Crosby, Smallwood announced he would be a candidate in the leadership contest to replace himself. After a bruising, divisive campaign, Smallwood prevailed, though his cabinet was gutted and the party was no longer the force it once was. The Progressive Conservatives named a new leader in 1970, turning to Frank Morris, one of the MPs elected in the 1968 federal election. With the economy not getting any better and the polls suggesting the trends were going against the Liberals, Smallwood was running out of time. He had to call an election by the end of November 1971. He announced a short three-week campaign in October, setting the date for the 28th. Smallwood banked on the support from the outports that had backed his campaign for Newfoundland to join Confederation, and the party hinted strongly that this would be his last election, for real. Smallwood campaigned tirelessly, and the Liberals had more money, but the PCs ran their most professional campaign up to that point. In the end, the PCs won St. John's in the western part of the island. The outports held for Smallwood, but the final count gave 21 seats to the PCs and 20 for the Liberals, with Tom Burgess, a former Liberal minister, winning Labrador West for his Labrador party. 
the Liberals had never taken less than 58% of the vote in an election since Confederation. But in 1971, they took 44%. For a few months, Smallwood would try to hold on to power with the support of Burgess. But he resigned in January 1972, with Frank Morris forming a government. Ed Roberts took over the Liberals, and within a few months, Morris called another election, which his party won easily. Smallwood would be back for one more election in 1975 at the head of a new party, the Reform Liberal Party, which contributed to a split in the vote that saw Moores re-elected that year. But finally, that would be the last campaign for the last father of Confederation. And that'll be it for the podcast this week. My series of analyses on each party's performance in the last federal election will be coming to a close next week with my look at the Greens. This past week, I posted articles on the Bloc and the People's Party. You can check those out at therid.ca. Okay, that's it for today. Have a good weekend, and thanks for listening.